I'd like to invite your attention to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7 as we continue our sermon series through the book of Genesis. Now as we gather on what is traditionally set aside to celebrate and reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ into the world, you might be asking the question, what does Genesis 7 have to do with the birth of Jesus Christ? What does a horrific, catastrophic, cataclysmic global flood have to do with the nativity scene? And so we are accustomed to reflecting on the birth of Jesus in terms of the circumstances of his birth with the angelic announcement and the shepherds and the wise man visiting the manger, the virgin birth, the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. But Genesis 7 teaches us everything about the reason for Jesus being born into the world, the reason that he was laid in the manger, the reason that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so if you have found your place to Genesis chapter 7, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. The word of the Lord says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to take with you seven pairs a male and its female, of all the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made will wipe off the face of the earth. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. From the clean animals, unclean animals, birds, and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day that all the sources of the vast watery deeps burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that same day, Noah, along with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and and his three sons' wives, entered the ark with him. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds. Two of every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. And those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth, but the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished, those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. 
Everything with the breath of life in it, in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the of the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged on the earth one hundred and fifty days. May God bless the reading and preaching of His Word. You may be seated. For many people, the Christmas season is the highlight of their year. They have time to spend with friends and family. They gather around the dinner table for a delicious meal. They exchange gifts. And for many Christians, it is a time that is set aside to remember the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And through our remembrance of the birth of Christ, we might think of many Advent text, many passages of Scripture that point us to the birth of Christ, whether those be Matthew chapter 1 or the early parts of Luke's gospel that describe to us the narrative of Jesus' birth and the way in which he was born into the world. But we might also think about Old Testament passages of Scripture that predicted the coming of Christ, such as Micah 5 predicting the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, Isaiah 7 predicting that a virgin would conceive and his name would be Emmanuel, Isaiah 9 speaks of a child being born to us and a son being given to us. And all of these are wonderful passages of Scripture to reflect on and to meditate on in a time in which we might be thinking and reflecting on the birth of Jesus Christ. And if we were not in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Genesis, then I think very few of us would be thinking about the flood narrative during this time. But the flood begs an important question for us today. Why did Jesus come? Why did He become flesh and dwell among us? What was the purpose of His coming? Well, we have observed in Genesis over the past several weeks that the world is marked by sin and corruption. And the corruption of mankind and the depth of their depravity has been nothing short of astounding. We've had them described as every inclination of the human heart was nothing but evil all the time. Humanity has corrupted the earth and filled it with wickedness. And we have read that Noah alone is righteous in the generation of the days of Noah. Well, such is the perpetual condition of humanity since the fall of Adam. And because of the condition of humanity before God, God's judgment is upon us. God in His holiness and in His justice and in His righteousness has pronounced judgment upon all mankind because as it was in the days of Noah, so it is in our day. All are guilty before God and worthy of His condemnation, but God has provided a means of salvation. He has provided a refuge, a shelter from His wrath and judgment that will be poured out on the world. He has provided a means of deliverance, a means of salvation, a place of refuge from the judgment and destruction that is coming upon the world. There is, in Christ Jesus, a place of safety. 
And so because God has provided a means of salvation, there is a great urgency in this text to become right with Him, to believe in Him, and to receive His ordained means of salvation. And so this text has everything to do with the birth of Jesus Christ into the world. This text has everything to do with Bethlehem and the manger because it points us to Jesus, God's ordained means of salvation. This is why Jesus came into the world to be a refuge for us, to endure the wrath of God, to take the judgment that was appointed for our sins so that we might be saved from the wrath of God. And so as we consider this text, as we walk through Genesis 7, there's two aspects of the character of God that we want to think about this morning. As God has provided a means of salvation, we see first that God is the sovereign creator who preserves his world and his rule. God is the sovereign creator who preserves his world and his rule. We've already noted the condition of the earth in the days of Noah. It's corrupt. We learned last week that that word meant, that word meant spoiled, ruined, devastated. That it's filled with wickedness. That the world is now filled with that which is contrary to God's good design. Humanity has ruined and corrupted God's good design and his good creation and it, humanity now stands in contrast to the character of God those who were made in the image of God to to bear his image and to display his attributes and to show his goodness to the rest of his creation they now stand in complete hostility and animosity they stand in stark contrast as the light stands against darkness to God's holy character he is righteous and he is holy and yes, we know that He is compassionate and gracious and He is merciful and loving and kind. But we must also note that God is just. And if all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and in chapter 2 we understood that God is the standard of morality and the standard of righteousness, that God's holy character is the uh, the, the measure of our righteousness, then mankind has fallen dramatically short of God's standard. The, against His holiness and His righteousness, God must justly punish sin. Because if God doesn't hate and judge sin, then He isn't holy and just. God must act according to His nature. Now, some have questioned the morality of the flood story. If God is really good, if He is truly gracious, if He's actually loving as He has described Himself in the world, then how could He possibly destroy the entirety of humanity save one man and his family? In fact, some notorious atheists have even noted the moral story of Noah is appalling. And yet we read in the Scriptures that God acts in a way that is completely consistent with His revealed character in the Bible. Every instance in Scripture that God destroys anyone, it's because He is pouring out His justice rightly upon them. 
As we read of the flood, or perhaps we read of the plagues in Egypt, or the destruction of Korah's family after his rebellion. If we read of the Israelites' invasion and conquering of Canaan, or the Assyrian and Babylon conquering of Israel, all of these so-called injustices in the world were ordained by a just God to accomplish His plans and purposes. This culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the only sinless man that ever lived was put to death at the hands of sinful men. And yet we read in Acts chapter 4 that it is God who has appointed this to happen for His sovereign purposes in complete consistency with His revealed character. Everything that happened on the cross of Calvary is not cosmic child abuse, but it is God's righteousness revealed from heaven and His justice poured out upon sin. There is no immorality of God. As we read last week, the flood come upon the world, it said, because of them. They have filled the world with wickedness. They have broken my standard of immorality and they have rebelled against me. And because of them, God destroys the world. He is the author and giver of life and we are responsible to Him. And as the author and giver of life, He has the right to take it when He pleases. And so God sovereignly acts in perfect justice against the rebellion in His creation. And this comes by the way of the flood. We read in the text, verse 4 says, In seven days, seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. And so Noah gets this seven day warning that everything on the earth, every creature is going to be wiped off, blotted out. God is going to destroy the earth and he's going to do it by his sovereign ability and at his appointed time. The flood nor the iniquity in the world caught God by surprise. It has come precisely when he designed it to. He tells Noah seven days from now the flood is going to come upon the world. And not only that, we have a marker by Noah's life in the very day, month, and year that the flood happened. It is recorded for us because the flood comes precisely when God ordained that it would. And this shows us God's complete sovereignty and control over His creation that He stands above it and is active in it. He controls the natural order just as he upholds the moral order of his world. We see that the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky burst open. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And supernaturally water floods over the mountaintops on the face of the earth. God shows his power over his creation in the natural order by bringing this supernatural flood on the earth. God controls all of the mechanisms of the flood. Psalm 135 tells us the Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth in the seas and all the depths he causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth he makes lightning for the rain and brings the wind from his storehouses God is in complete sovereign control over the events that happened in Noah's day now there are many who would say that this is 
too far-fetched. It is impossible that God could have flooded the entire world. There's not even enough water uh, for this to happen. Or they say that there's no scientific or geological evidence for such an event. And so in doing so, they say either the Bible is wrong and that we're misled concerning what happened or that the Bible is not describing a global worldwide flood, but only a local flood isolated to this Mesopotamian region. Now, those who say that the Bible only describes a local flood are pandering to so-called modern science and their starting point for truth is science rather than the Bible. There is abundant evidence for a global cataclysmic flood. Now, it's not my purpose today to defend all of the natural evidence of the flood. There are organizations who do very well at that. But we see even in nature that the animals would have fit on the ark. One argument is typically that there's no way that all the animals would have fit on the ark. But notice in the scripture it doesn't say that God is bringing every species that ever existed. But the kinds, those that are able to genetically reproduce and then produce the variety of species that we see on the earth today. Noah brought only kinds of animals, not every species. And he brought these pairs of kinds so that they might reproduce. And even the large animals that we might think are too large to have fit on the ark. It doesn't say that he brought completely mature adult versions of these species uh, or kinds. But that he may have brought um, adolescent ones. That he could have brought children, uh, males and females, that they might grow and mature and then reproduce on the earth. Some have objected that there is not enough water to have covered the earth in this way, but it's been discovered as recently as back in 2014 that there are oceans worth, volumes and volumes of water under the surface of the crust of the earth, and that these are the very waters that sprung forth in Noah's day to flood the earth, giving validity to the description that we find in the scriptures. There are fish fossils, seashells, and whales that are found on the mountaintops in Peru and in the Himalayans. And there are flood stories in every culture of the world. And though many would say that the Bible merely copies these myths, I believe that these myths originated from historical truth of Noah's flood. But there are also those who are not just trying to prove a a local flood, but there are those who have a vested interest, uh, a theological interest in trying to prove that there was no flood. Because you see, modern science has to prove that there, or they want to prove that there was no flood at all. Because if there was a flood, then they have to wrestle with the very questions that we are wrestling with today. If the flood really happened, is God angry with us also? Have we sinned? Are we evil? You see, the world doesn't want Noah's flood to have happened. Because if it did, then they have to reckon with the reason for such an incredible event. And they have to reckon with their own standing with the God who caused it to happen. As far-fetched as it seems, God is sovereign over the natural order and He has brought about this global flood of judgment upon the face of the earth. But He is sovereign over His moral order as well. The Bible says in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these 
things. The God who has created the heavens and the earth and made mankind in his image has not only ordained the natural order and has supernatural power over it, but he has power to sustain the moral order that he has ordained from the beginning. And in a world that is filled with wickedness and iniquity and rebellion against God, he has now sovereignly decreed that he is going to right the wrong in his creation. Because he is the one who made all things, he cannot be charged with wrong by destroying his creatures who have rebelled against him. As Abraham rightly notes in Genesis 18, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And so God sovereignly preserves his moral order. Though though mankind has corrupted the entirety of the earth, God acts supernaturally to preserve his law and to preserve his morality for generations to come. And so God acts here in a way that destroys all living things except those in the ark. And in this, he still preserves life and preserves his creation. He preserves his natural order. But he also preserves his moral order by saving the one righteous man and bringing condemnation upon the wicked. You see, God is in sovereign control over his creation. And he acts through his sovereignty to preserve his world and to preserve his rule. May we stand in awe of God who acts in this tremendous, magnificent, and powerful way today. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And so, dear Christian, as we face the world around us, there is nothing that is outside the scope and bounds of the providence and sovereignty of God. There's nothing that comes into our lives that is unexpected to God. It might feel unexpected to us, and we might not have thought that this was going to happen, whether it's issues with our health or issues with our job or any circumstances in our life. Whatever they may be, God, who had control over a worldwide flood and decreed it from the beginning, has control over the very circumstances of your life. And so we can rest in his sovereignty. We can rest in his goodness. We can rest in his wisdom, knowing that whatever God has ordained is right, and that he is using it for his purposes and for his plans. And we can know, dear Christian, that God who ordained the judgment that come upon the world in Noah's day has ordained that judgment will become upon those who are wicked in the last day. For all the injustice that we see, we can trust and know that God will bring justice in his time. And so we trust him and we rest in him and we hope in him knowing that he is going to bring deliverance from this ungodly world. Some of the verses that we've looked at over the past couple weeks come from 2 Peter chapter 2 and it says there, for if God didn't spare the angels who sinned but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment and if he didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others when he brought the flood on the world, he goes on to say in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. 
Oh, dear Christian, if God was able to accomplish this in Noah's day, then he knows how to accomplish everything in your life to work all things out for his glory and for your good. Whether it be trials or whether it be the unrighteous mockery that comes upon us, God is able to reserve them for the day of judgment and to preserve his people unto salvation on the last day. As I reflected on this text this week, I was reminded of the saints who stand before the throne in Revelation chapter 6, and they cry out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? They were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. And so whether it's trials and temptations or whether it's persecution, whatever comes into our lives as we cry out for justice, as we observe the injustice in this world, we look unto God and as we cry out, we know that He is holy and He is true. But He says to us, just a little while longer. And so we wait upon the Lord knowing that He will accomplish His purposes in due time. And so Genesis 7 shows us that the just punishment of sin on the world, excuse me, that shows us the just punishment for the sin of the world that is carried out by the sovereign hand of God. But it also shows us that God has ordained a means of salvation. And so we have seen God's sovereign, that He is a sovereign creator over His world. But let us see second, that God is the gracious Redeemer who preserves a people for Himself. God is a gracious Redeemer who preserves a people for Himself. You see, we've already noted over the past couple weeks that against the impending judgment that is coming upon the world and the darkness that is in the world, God promised salvation to one man and his family. And we have observed Noah's righteousness and his obedience because amidst this corruption, there is one man who stands out. Verse 1 tells us of Genesis 7, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, For I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Now we've considered this word righteous extensively, but fundamentally it means that Noah was upright before the Lord. Yes, he has been justified, declared right by faith, but it also means the emphasis here is on his practical righteousness that is evidenced in the way that he lives and that righteousness is born out of a soul that has found favor grace with God we read that back in Genesis 6 verse 8 Noah found favor with the Lord and it's because of his grace to Noah he is described as righteous blameless and as walking with God So dear Christian, let me note here that God's purpose of grace in our life, He saved us unto good works and unto righteousness. We read in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. 
The work that we see that God did in Noah's life is the very work that is happening in our lives. God has chose us before eternity passed and saved us in due time to make us holy and blameless before Him that we might be righteous and walk blamelessly in the world. It is the purpose of the Lord that His salvation would yield righteousness in our lives. And like Noah, our faith, our belief in God ought to produce godliness but we see already that this grace is only mediated through faith it's by trusting in the lord it's believing in his promises we read that last week in hebrews 11 by faith noah condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith and so god is a gracious redeemer of his people but this gracious redemption is, comes through faith. And, and we see God's care as he gives his word to Noah. You see, Noah takes that word and he believes God's word. God commands him, enter the ark. Seven days I'm going to destroy the world. Uh, and God has given all of these commands to Noah for his good, for his preservation. But Noah acts on faith. The means through which God mediates his gracious redemption to his people is through their belief by faith. And so Noah built the ark. Consider all the time that it would have taken Noah to build this monstrous boat. Consider the effort that he spent. Consider the worldly gain that he forsook. Consider the mockery that he endured. All of this by faith. And yet there's a greater act of faith that Noah exhibits here in Genesis chapter 7. Because he enters the ark. For all of the work that Noah did and all of the things that he did in obedience to God, Noah's greatest act of faith, the moment that most exhibits that Noah trusts in the Lord and believes his promises, is it says, Noah entered the ark. He forsook all that was outside. He hoped only in the world to come. And he trusted that God would sustain him and keep him, casting himself wholly on God and on his word. He believed that God was going to destroy the world and preserve his family to the other side. By entering this ark, Noah believed that, he, uh, that God was going to save him. Yes, Noah acted upon that faith and obedience. He believed God and he built the ark and he put forth the effort. And yet, ultimately and finally, Noah trusted that it was God alone that was going to save him. He walked by faith and not by sight. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, he gathered food. By faith, he sheltered all of these animals into the ark. By faith, he prepared for the flood. And by faith, he entered the ark. By faith, Noah trusted that God was going to do for him what he could not do for himself. For all of Noah's obedience, for his building the boat and covering it with pitch and following God's exact specification, Noah ultimately hoped and believed that God was going to do something for him that he was unable to do for himself. And that is clearly shown to us in verse 16. Look with me there. In verse 16 we read, 
those that entered, male and female, of every creature entered just as God commanded him, then the Lord shut him in. Then the Lord shut him in. You see, Noah went through all of the steps. He built the ark. He covered it in pitch. And it's far from my mind to believe that Noah had zero doubts about what he was doing or how he was doing it. In fact, in my mind, I think that Noah probably even entering the ark was asking those last minute kind of questions. Is this thing going to float? Did I do it right? Did we apply enough pitch? Are we going to spring a leak? But Ultimately, Noah went into the ark trusting not in his own ability, but trusting that God was going to preserve him. He was not trusting in the works of his own hands. Noah was trusting that God was going to save him and his family. And he enters the ark waiting for God to shut the door of the ark by his sovereign power and by his grace. Noah's salvation comes from God alone. God alone was able to provide Noah for salvation. And we see that as the hand of God closes the ark, doing for Noah what he could not do for himself and preserving his family. Yes, all of this come to Noah through faith. He obeyed God. His faith led him to obey God. But he ultimately knew that it was God alone who was going to save him and his family. And so yes, God is a gracious Redeemer who preserves a people for Himself. But we see here that through faith, God personally sees to it to secure the salvation of His people. God sees to it to personally secure the salvation of His people. How fearful were the events taking place outside, but inside, God's people were safe. God did not leave it to Noah to secure his own salvation, nor did he leave it to us to secure our own salvation by our, the strength of our faith or by the level of our obedience. God has not left it to us to save ourselves. He seals us and saves us and secures us in the ark that is Christ. I'm reminded of one preacher who has famously said, if you could lose your salvation, dear Christian, you would. And so, dear Christian, your ultimate salvation, your final salvation and hope of eternal life is not in your ability to obey and not on your perseverance. It's not on your, uh, your ability to do anything before the Lord. It's not, uh, it's not based upon the strength of your faith and how well you hope in Christ. No, dear friend, your eternal salvation is only in Christ. Your salvation is secured by Christ. And as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, dear Christian, last week we made a huge point about perseverance. Persevere to the end. Strive to be faithful. Strive to be obedient. And by that you show yourself to be in Christ. But the message of Genesis chapter 7 is one of rest and one of hope in Christ alone. There is no amount of effort that you can put forth to save yourself. Your faith is not going to be tested by the level of your obedience, but only that you are believing in Christ Jesus alone. 
God has secured the ark of your salvation and he alone will keep you afloat. You are being guarded, protected, set aside, kept for a salvation by God's power on the last day. And he mediates this through faith. As the waters rose, there was nothing left for Noah to do but trust that God would keep him. Perhaps there was fear and anxiety, but nothing depended on Noah. It depended on God alone. And so I'm reminded of an illustration of this, I think, from the book Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you have heard me speak of that book before. But Christian and his friend Hopeful come to the end of their journey. They have traveled the pilgrim way. They have entered by the narrow gate. They have entered through Christ. And they have been faithful. They have been obedient. They have hoped in Christ all the days of their life. And they have now come to the last part of their journey. And they stand at this river representative of death. These angels tell them that you must cross over. The only way to the celestial city is by crossing over. As they stood there... John Bunyan says, Betwixt them and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge to go over, and the river was very deep. At the sight, therefore, of this river, the pilgrims were stunned. The men that were with them said, You must go through, or you cannot come to the gate. So they began to be sorrowful, John Bunyan writes. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to despond in their mind and looked this way and that, but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river. They looked all around and there was nowhere to go but through this river. They had to pass through death to get to the celestial city, to get to eternal life. And they were despondent, sorrowful in their souls. And then they began to ask the angels that are next to them, is the water the same depth all the way across? How shallow, how deep, how hard is it going to be for me to persevere to the other side? And the angels tell them, no, the waters are not all of the same depth. And we can't tell you how deep they will be. For they said, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of that place. And so, dear Christian, I think this illustrates for us through this uh, analogy of death that as we face death on the last day and, uh, and we think about our final moments on earth, our ability to face that moment is secured only by our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christian wades into the waters and he goes out to the middle of the river, the waves begin to crash over his head and he believes that he's drowning and he thinks more and more of the sins of his life both before he knew Christ and even after he knew Christ and he thinks surely I'm going to be swept away in judgment but his friend hopeful cries out to him dear Christian Jesus Christ makes you whole and at that moment Christian found his footing and he passes over to the other side and so it is for you dear Christian you live in obedience and you persevere in the faith. But on the last day before the throne of God at judgment, when you draw your last breath, your only hope is Jesus Christ makes me whole. My only hope is that Jesus Christ is the ark of my salvation. The only hope is that God has shut the door and sealed me by His Spirit and has secured me unto the last day. Jesus Christ makes you 
whole. And so, dear Christian, as you face death and as you face impending judgment, as you face the trials of life, as you face everything, it is by faith in the King of that place and it is by faith of God who has provided an ark of salvation in Christ Jesus that we face these things. He is the ark of our salvation and this is what Christians celebrate when we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But the good news to you who are here this morning and have not put your faith in Christ, who have not trusted in Him alone for your salvation, the door of the ark remains open to you. We see that sin is an offense to God's character and He is pouring out His judgment on the world. And just as He promised judgment in the days of Noah, so He has promised judgment upon you. It is appointed man once to die and after this, the judgment, you will stand before the throne of God one day. But we see in this text the mercy of God because He leaves the door of salvation open until the last possible moment. We see the forbearance of God and the patience of God. People in the days of Noah did not perish because of a lack of God's mercy to them. They perished because of their unwillingness to let go of the things of the world and repent of their sins and turn to the only hope of salvation that God had provided. And so God is glorious in His holy character and His wrath burns against our sin just as it did against the sins of those in the day of Noah. But the same God who saved Noah will save you if you will believe upon his dear son. You see, the door of that ark points to a greater door in the Lord Jesus Christ who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. And as he speaks in John chapter 10, he refers to himself as the door. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Oh, what wonderful grace of God to sinners because the door is still open before the final judgment and Jesus Himself pleads with you, enter in, come to Me, all you who labor and are weary and I will give you rest. I am the door. If anyone enters by Me, you will be saved. And He says, the one who comes to Me, I will never cast out. Jesus is not going to reject the one who looks to Him in faith, trusting in Him alone for salvation that's why we read in our scripture reading this morning his name was called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins if you will look to Christ you will find salvation from the judgment to come you will find salvation from your sin you will find refuge from the wrath of God you will be sheltered from the eternal fire of God's condemning judgment upon your sin you will be refuge safe secure in the ark that is Christ Jesus but I would warn you dear friend Though God's mercy is long-suffering and He held the door of the ark open until the last possible moment, there was a moment when the door was shut and God's grace come to an end. And perhaps you were here this morning and you've heard the gospel many times and you say, I'll handle that another day. I will look to be saved another time. I want to have my fun for now. I want to enjoy the world while I can. And then at the last moment, I'll enter into the door of salvation. But be warned, your sin is hardening you. 
And the longer you enjoy the pleasures of this world and the longer that you indulge your sin, the more hardened you are and the less likely you're going to be to enter in that door at the end. And more importantly, that judgment could be ushered in today. Christ could come back and He could usher in the judgment to come. The door will be shut at a time that is unannounced to you. And after it does, there will be no opportunity for you to be saved. And eternal condemnation will fall on you. As the author of Hebrews says, if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedient received a just punishment, listen, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. If you're here this morning and you are neglecting to put your faith in Christ Jesus, if you are putting that moment off, know that Christ, the door is open for you, but there will be a moment when that door is shut and there is no more hope for you. There is only eternal condemnation. But if you will repent of your sins, you will be saved. But if you reject the opportunity to be saved, to put your faith and trust in Christ, how will you escape if you neglect God's only means of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Such is the birth of the Savior into the world. Lying in the manger is your ark of salvation because he grew up to be a perfect man who died on the cross of Calvary and shed his blood for your sins so that you might have eternal life. Oh, turn from the evil of this world. Repent and believe the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ, the ark of salvation. And so as we close, let us reflect on the birth of Jesus in this way. For what, what reason did He come? But to be our ark of salvation and a refuge from the wrath of God that is certain to come. Let us go to Him in prayer. Lord, we look to Christ, our only hope of salvation, and we rest in Him. Lord, we live and obey because you have commanded us to do so. And it is through our faith that we live in obedience. And it is through our faith that you save us. But Lord, we confess at this moment that it is ultimately Christ alone. It is ultimately your work in our life. It is ultimately you who saves us. It is you who have worked in us both the will and the ability to do anything according to your good pleasure. And we confess Christ alone for our salvation. Father, for the one who has not made that confession, we pray, God, that your spirit would move upon them, work in their souls, and draw them to Christ so that he will show that he will not cast them out. Father, we thank you that we who are worthy of condemnation have been recipients of your marvelous grace and your provision of an ark of our salvation, Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.